And Acts chapter 10 is a fairly self-contained story. Uh, Peter and Cornelius. Now, the most famous Cornelius at our house is the one that's in Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer. There's a, a Cornelius in there. I haven't known many Corneliuses uh, through the years, but uh, this is a pretty famous Cornelius. Luke saw this as a very pivotal story, so much so that he's going to give it to us again in different ways a couple more times in the book. So if I, if I don't do it well this time, we got a couple other shots at it to get back on track. Uh, one author titled his little piece about this as a case of double vision. And I thought that was really good because this is a case of double vision. Two visions that we're going to hear about. Double vision. Also, if you think about, I don't know how many people have ever had double vision, but if you've ever had double vision, it's, it's disorienting. Things are kind of confusing. And the best thing about double vision is when you're not having double vision again. When it all comes into focus and you might say that this really happens for both of the main people in this story that things come into focus. Things come into focus for Peter who has his own set of baggage and presuppositions like many of us do. Things come into focus for Cornelius who has been on the outside looking in at what God has been doing and and now he gets to partake um, with all that he is. And so things come into focus for both of these gentlemen. I, I'm not sure how to, how to work through this passage except to just talk through uh, the story. <coughs> maybe we'll just, maybe just, we'll just read it in chunks. That's probably the best the best way because there's so much content here. So let's begin at verse 1 of chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Any newspaper editor would be thrilled with that sentence. Luke had it going on. Now, I'm not a newspaper editor, but there is so much content there. Where is it happening? At Caesarea. Who's the main person we're going to talk about? Cornelius. Who is Cornelius? He was a centurion. Um, this was, of course, a Roman officer. And he was in charge of at least 100 men. Uh, some people I've read that said if you were kind of a upper-level centurion, you might have been in command of upwards of 600 men. Uh, the Italian cohort... Now, Rome was in Italy, so if this was the Italian cohort, this was like uh, one of the more prominent uh, um, uh, garrisons of uh, Roman military. And yet he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. A devout man basically had probably been influenced by uh, Jewish teaching, uh, knew Yahweh God, knew the God of uh, the Bible of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, uh, but wasn't yet a full proselyte, uh, a, a convert to Judaism. Uh, he was 
you know, not circumcised and so forth, but certainly it says he was um, well spoken of. Later we'll find that he was well spoken of by the Jews. So he was probably had, had been in um, the limited sections of the synagogue that he could uh, get to and so forth. So these are his uh, credentials. A couple things uh, briefly about Caesarea. Uh, this is not Caesarea Philippi. This is Caesarea on the coast of Israel. It has an interesting history. Uh, it was a very important port. It was set up by Herod the Great um, 30 or 40 years prior. Uh, it was decreed that all of the ships that wanted to do trade had to come through there. In fact, this was, as far as Rome was concerned, Jerusalem was not the capital of Palestine. Caesarea was. This is where Rome had its big headquarters. Uh, it was on the coast. This was definitely... Um, uh, would have been considered the proper place for an Italian for sure. Um, Jerusalem would have been more intemperate, more up in the hills, maybe colder in the winter. Um, this was the place where Rome had the headquarters. Uh, it was important port um, for Rome to keep open because all of the grain that was being grown in Egypt would flow out of this port to Rome. So it was very important to keep this place open and therefore it was well garrisoned. Um, and so forth. So this was kind of a, a big deal. It's very interesting modern day history. I, I didn't know this. I googled. I said, where is modern day Caesarea? Well, it's in Caesarea. Uh, and, but it's gone through some, some interesting times. Uh, it was um, uh, barren for a number of years and a member of the Rothschild family. You've heard of the Rothschilds. Um, uh, famous for a variety of things. I, I had heard the name. I had to look them up. I said, who are the Rothschilds while we're chasing rabbits? And apparently there was a, um, uh, these were a group of Jewish uh, bankers in Germany uh, who had at one point the greatest private wealth in the world. They dispersed to different areas and in, I guess, a hundred or so years ago, um, this, this area was not... Um, really inhabited and around the time that Israel became a nation the Rothschilds basically just bought this whole area of Caesarea and to this day it is the only municipality that's basically run by a private corporation and it's uh, kind of a resort town and has been built up the ruins of the old Caesarea are still visible apparently and for you golfers out there apparently this is the site of the only 18-hole golf course in Israel so there's your <laughs> there's your uh, little uh, travelogue for Caesarea so it was a it was a big deal and if you were in charge of the garrison there or at least a section of it as as um, Cornelius was uh, this was important and 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 uh, Luke wants to, to drive that home. So in verse 3, it says, About the ninth hour of the day, he saw, that is Cornelius, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, and he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he, that is Cornelius, called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So, 
Here's Cornelius, a devout man. He's in the process of praying when he sees a vision that says, go find Peter. Go find Simon Peter. He's at the home of Simon the Tanner and go get him. And so that's what he does. And here we see um, this feeling of immediacy and, and action. He hears from God and right away, like a good soldier, he says, I'm on it, calls for his people, dispatches them to go and find uh, Peter. All happens very quickly. This is the first of our double visions. Verse 9, the next day as they were on their journey, that is these three people, the representatives from Cornelius, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. This is around lunch, around noon. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, I've heard people talk about having hypoglycemic episodes um, and weird things happen. I even had a patient who said that her cat could tell when she was having a hypoglycemic episode and would come wake her up. That's way more, you know, insight that to attribute to a cat than I want to do. But in, in any event, I've heard some interesting stories when people are hypoglycemic. I don't think that's what has happened here. It says he fell into a trance and he was in the midst of praying and then he sees this vision. All sorts of animals. And apparently, it, it does include animals and reptiles. And we know that uh, reptiles were among a number of things that the uh, Jews were forbidden to eat. Uh, we always think about, you know, the, the Jews can't eat pork. Well, there's a whole lot of good stuff that they weren't supposed to eat. Crawfish at the top of the list, <laughs> but other things too. And, and they couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't eat these things. And, but he's, he's told, you know, go and eat. And we have some interesting wordplay that uh, I'm not sure all the translations get. Peter says, I've not in, eaten anything that's common or unclean. God says, don't call what I said clean common. Um, a little a Jew if they had associated with a Gentile would have been somewhat tainted by that and would have been called common right uh, so Jews were set apart by God that was part of God's design uh, would have been common the Gentile who was doing um, things like eating these objectionable items the Gentile would have been unclean, right? So we have this common and unclean, and, and God declares uh, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three things and was taken up at once to heaven. So here we have our second of our double vision. And now we have um, this interlude, verse 17. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, so he didn't quite get it at the moment, like I'm sure a lot of us wouldn't, like, what was that? Um, 
what do I do with that? But he doesn't really have time to ponder it because there's a knock at the door. While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, he's still figuring it out, the Peter said to him, or the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, and well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Uh, we're going to hear this little preamble referred to a number of times. Uh, the, one commentator made the point that every time you hear it, um, the role and the status and the accolades attributed to Cornelius become a little less a little less, a little less. And so Luke very gently is taking the focus off Cornelius. He's made his point and moving the focus more uh, towards spiritual matters. I thought that was an interesting observation. If you read it, uh, I think that's probably true. So um, here we have um, this transition. And, and when we think of, this, um, think of this passage, you might think of it as the passage about the conversion of Cornelius. But this is really about the conversion of Cornelius and the conversion of Peter. So here we have the first thing that's shifting. First of all, where's Peter been staying? At Simon the Tanner's house. Now what did Tanners do? Well, they took, you know, the skins off of animals who've been slaughtered and they're going to turn them into leather. That's real sketchy work for a Jew. You're touching dead stuff all the time. And you're touching things that have touched dead things. It's, it's, real, it's real marginal territory, right? Uh, they knew it was a necessity, and, you know, it, you know, but it's kind of dirty work. You know, if you were, I'm sure these uppity-ups that we've been talking about with the religious elite probably wouldn't have shaken Simon's hand if they knew what Simon the Tanner did. But here we have Simon Peter staying there. And plus, anybody ever watch Dirty Jobs? <laughs> Did you ever see the episode where he goes to um, the Tanners? Where they're actually, they take all the skins with the hair and everything on it, throw it in a big vat of lye, they come back a few days, weeks, whatever later, and then they're scraping the flesh and the hair off of the hide, and they're left with all this gunk down there. And, of course, micro, you know, what doesn't translate, thankfully, is the smell. But he lets us know about the smell. Well, with the tanners, it was smelly. That doesn't come across with Luke, but it was smelly at a tanner shop. So this would have added to the whole craziness of the thing, right? And here he is. You've got this stinky tanner thing. No wonder Peter went up on the roof. Maybe it was for privacy. Maybe it stunk less up there. But they're preparing food, and, you know, how are you going to smell the food? Anyway, all this is happening, and then the people show up. But he wouldn't have been at a tanner's if these prejudices and things weren't, start, weren't starting to melt a little bit already. Now we got three foreigners coming in, 
And now you have, am I going to hang out with these people? What if people see these folks coming into our house? You know, this whole thing. Anyway, they get invited in. It's probably late in the day. It was a couple days walk. Remember, um, Peter was at Joppa, also on the coast, right? Caesarea's north. Uh, about two days hard walk, about 20 miles uh, between the two. Too late to start back up again. He said, you guys come in and be my guests. All right, verse 23, the next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Later in the story, we find out that six people came with him from Joppa. It's going to be important because they're going to be witnesses to what happens, right? They're, they're going to have a role to play. Verse 24, and on the following day they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and his close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. So here Peter walks up to the door. Immediately, Cornelius greets him, which probably would have been an honor. In most cases, he probably would have had a servant greet him. But here he meets and greets Peter, falls down on his face, and kind of does a worship thing. Peter's like, Whoa, wait a minute. Stand up. I'm not the person you need to be worshiping. But he comes on in, and, and then Peter's like, wow, there's a crowd here. You know, that I wasn't expecting all this. But Cornelius, when he sent three people, he expected them to come back, and he knew about when they should be expected to arrive. And, and he had called the friends and relatives, it says, and, and they were ready. And he wanted everyone to hear what was going to happen. So already the Holy Spirit has not only been working in Cornelius's heart, but also in the heart of the people that had been gathered, and that's the way the Holy Spirit works. So, verse 27, he says, As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me this, that I should not call any person common or unclean. So, he's had a couple days to think about this now, right? He's been walking on the road. He's had a lot of time to think right these other guys are probably in better shape you know they're soldier types you know he might have been lagging i don't know he had some time to think and he's putting it together and say you know those all that animal stuff that wasn't really talking about the food it was kind of talking about the food but it's bigger than that it's bigger than that it's people too and now here are all these people that would have been unclean and now here i am i'm going into them and this is interesting this, this thing it says where it says unlawful, it is for a Jew to associate with anyone. That's actually not in the Old Testament law. That was one of these extra laws. You know, the Jews were really good slash bad about adding extra things uh, to the law. This was one of those extra things, okay? So there's not really a rule that says you can't go to somebody's house or whatever. But, but it had become that by the time of Peter's day. Anyway, verse 29 says, So when I was sent forward, I came without objection. I asked him, why did you send for me? So I won't repeat all of this. Verse 30, Cornelius, this is the, the third time we hear this story about what happened. Verse 33, so I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. All right, you're on. So, so Peter's like, okay. Uh, so Peter opened his mouth um, and said, and so many times when Peter opened his mouth, it didn't go well. But this time it goes well, so we give props to Peter for the Holy Spirit uh, working through him. 
Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter is getting it now, and now he is putting this out there. Now, don't carry this particular statement too far. When it says, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right, then becomes acceptable to him, that doesn't mean that they're saved, right? It just means that those barriers, anyone is open to coming to saving knowledge of Christ. Um, but it's not just if you're a good person. That's not what, that's not what Peter is saying. That now he goes into it. Verse 36, As for the word that he sent Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning in, from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. So Peter walks them through what happened. Smarter people than me have said, you know, we know that when we studied Mark that we think that Peter mainly dictated to Mark what all had happened. Um, and the, the progression that Mark takes is very similar to the progression that Peter takes right here because it started off with the baptism of John and he walks people through. Verse 38, we know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by evil, or rather by the devil, and for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death. Verse 40, God raised him on the third day. He appeared to us as witnesses. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And here is the altar call, verse 43, to him, that is to Jesus, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him and receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Now Peter gets it. This is everyone. This is everyone. Way back in Matthew, Jesus tells Peter, I am giving you the keys of the kingdom. Peter is there in Jerusalem in the upper room. He was there in Samaria and he's there in Caesarea. Three times he is using those keys to unlock the kingdom of God to the people that are there. All three places. Because who was in Caesarea? Philip was there. We already got a decent evangelist who was close by. Why did they go get Peter? Because symbolically, Peter had the keys to the kingdom. Peter could attest, this is opened up for everyone. And this is really one of the, for those of us who would have been right in Cornelius's shoes, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That everyone, that's really when it first shows up for us. That's when we're in that. We're in that everyone. And, you know, look what happens. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, likely they caught it just like we do when we hear everyone and they heard everyone and they had all been gathered there and they knew Cornelius and they knew the God that he had been talking about and when it says everyone who believes 
The Holy Spirit didn't wait till Peter finished. It just happened right then. It says the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Those six guys that came with Peter, they saw what was happening and they were amazed. The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Clearly Peter was a Baptist. They've been saved. Where's the water? Who's going to get my way? Verse 48, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. They said, you know, oh my gosh, we're saved. And, you know, it's all making sense now. This little bit that we've been seeing from the outside, that we've been hearing about Cornelius, and now we hear, and, you know, they knew probably about the prophecies. They knew all had been said about the anointed one, and we read about Isaiah, and now they're finding out, hey, we're in that. We're in that. We're in that remnant that we kept talking about so many times. That is talking about us as well. So this is just one of the coolest, coolest um, stories in all of Acts, I think. Um, and like I said, Peter thinks it's pretty cool too because we're going to hit it a couple times. So, a couple quick things. Um, one neat um, observation uh, one commentator said, you know, Peter was kind of like Jonah, right? Remember Jonah? He got, he got the direction to, to go and preach. He didn't want to, right? He took this big, big wet detour. Well, you know, Peter, at a certain stage, he probably would have been reluctant too. But then he goes, and then it all turns out pretty good, and they go through the parallels, which I thought was pretty interesting. Another point. One of the reasons why Luke highlights this story about this Roman centurion of the Italian cohort, you know how Luke has been introducing us to people and then we hear a little bit more about them later and then we hear a little bit more about them later? Well, he's introducing us to Rome through the centurion. Little by little, Luke is going to take us to Rome. That's where he's heading. And here he is introducing not just the person, but now the place. Luke's going to take us to Rome. That's where he's going to finish up his story, and he's starting to take us there. A question which I, I think we kind of know the answer to, but just to get you thinking, do people really know when they're lost? Do people really know that they're lost? You can be really devout about a lot of different things. But sometimes that can make you think that you're fine. Right? And culturally, that is in there somewhere. There's many, many people who think they're doing pretty good living pretty good lives they don't really know that they're lost they don't really know that they're missing something 
Cornelius, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he knew that he was missing something. And he was praying with the knowledge that he had, but God knew he needed something else. He said, you know, your prayers are answered. He didn't get saved then. God could have saved him, I suppose. He said, you need to know the rest of the story. So he heard the rest of the story. Several things that this talks about, this whole passage talks about salvation. It talks about, you know, the spread of the gospel. It talks about um, the way the Holy Spirit works in people and all those things. But it would be, you know, really missing it not to consider what does this passage tell us about prejudice which if you haven't noticed is kind of a hot topic right now um, I read a little funny vignette about C.S. Lewis apparently was a pretty smart precocious little kid seven or eight years old and told his dad I'm prejudiced against France his dad said well why he said well if I knew that it wouldn't be a prejudice which is really true right prejudice is that feeling that you have against something when you don't know what you're talking about it's prejudging before the facts now of course there's a lot of, lot of space between blind prejudice and you know whatever full understanding is the problem with a lot of people is they know they open themselves up to just enough facts to support their presuppositions right they're very selective there's a lot that psychology has to say about this we tend to think that the things that are familiar are true think about that for just a second the things that are familiar we start to believe are true this is how prejudices hang around for a long time because we make it worse because we often tend to associate with people who think like us. Right? Anyway. There is certainly no room for prejudice as far as who gets the gospel. There is certainly no room for prejudice on how we treat each other in our church, in our communities, in our nation, and oh my gosh, what is going on these days is just crazy. Um, bigger than all of us, but yet each of us has that opportunity, right? If we're really honest, we all got our little biases, right? We all got our little biases, you know? Um, I encounter this all the time, you know. I, I, I saw this. Um, I saw this person come in. Tons of tattoos, gauges. Do you know what gauges are? The big kind of earlobe things. You know, a lot of piercings. It may not be your thing. That's what you do. Well, his job was to take care of this paraplegic lady. You know, he wasn't a big rough and tumble guy. He spent his whole day taking care of somebody else, right? I had somebody else who had overheard somebody in the waiting room and a parent-child interaction that wasn't that great, and they said, 
you know, uh, I kind of feel sorry for that kid. That mom didn't seem to be paying too much attention. What that person didn't know was that that mom literally has half a brain. Had bad epilepsy, literally had half her brain taken out. And I thought to myself, she's doing pretty good for half a brain. Right? Understanding stamps out prejudice. And we've got to just open ourselves up to that. It's the people that are most hard-hearted who don't shake the hand, who don't engage in the conversation, those are the ones that hold on to their prejudice so tightly. They don't, they don't want to know the truth. And of course, like so many things, Jesus said the truth will set you free, and I think that's certainly true for us. We better quit. I'm sorry that was so fast, it seems. Quick comments from anyone? Let's pray so you all get to church. Father, we thank you so much that we are in that everyone who believes that Jesus died for us also. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.